kids are very, very curious and they want to learn. Like that's sort of like in them, right? We're born that way. We want to know about everything. That's why they're like asking why all the time and asking questions and this and that. And they are grabbing stuff and breaking stuff and trying things. And so they're like unstoppable. But, but then what happens is you start to see that that fades, starts to fade down when you put them in a structured environment, whether it's pre-K or kindergarten or whatever it is, that suddenly somebody's telling you, you know, what are the subjects that you're going to be learning about, when you're going to be learning about them, to what extent, when you have to like close it, even though you're super excited about it, you're like, nope, this period is done. We need to close it. We need to move on to the next thing. Oh, now I'm actually going to grade you on what you're learning. So now, you know, you you better do really well on this because or otherwise I'm going to give you a grade. And so suddenly like they have no choices over this thing that came naturally to them. So obviously this curiosity and this excitement and all these things start to get replaced by this negative things, right? Like, oh, I I no longer want to learn because they're forcing me to learn this or I'm not interested in this or I actually wanted to do a little bit more of that or, oh, now I need to focus on that grade, not really on the learning. So like all my focus goes there. And so this whole thing that was really natural gets like squashed (laughs) by putting them in this like really confined traditional spaces. I'm really impressed by our team at Four Capital and the newsletter that we've created that we send out quarterly. Talks all about our real estate firm. It talks about our forward thinking and tech-focused culture. And this is really what we believe sets us apart from most real estate companies. We offer exclusive content from Fort Capital's economic strategist, information on the latest acquisitions and dispositions, our top-performing podcast episodes, most recent content pieces, you can sign up for our newsletter at fortcapitallp.com. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today. I've been really excited to talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. I think a good place to start, and I'm going to start from a personal experience, would be around ADHD. It seems to me, I, I, I've been one who's been diagnosed with it early in life. And as I look at the world today, it seems like everybody has ADHD, which kind of makes me think maybe nobody has ADHD. I would like to hear from you about kind of your experience with this and like how you look at the problem in America with every kid now having ADHD. Yeah. So this is a kind of a controversial topic. And of course, you know, I'm going to speak from experience, but it, it varies from person to person. But I do have a very strong opinion in this because of my personal experience and then as a teacher working with kids that were quote unquote ADHD students. So I've always had this like very lively personality, excited about everything, lots of energy, you know, kind of the typical kid, right? That's running around up and down, can't really sit still, love to talk. And so these are sort of like the aspects of my personality that make me who I am today. But when I was little, I went to, you know, 10 different schools in seven different countries. And over and over again, my parents would hear from teachers, you know, she's pretty disruptive. Um, she talks a lot. It doesn't matter where we sit her. She's going to talk. She can't sit still. You know, she's a good girl and she gets good grades, but but it's, you know, she would do better if you get her tested. She probably has ADHD. And so again, a lot of people experience this. A lot of parents that I talked to are like, oh yeah, this sounds very familiar. And so I went to different doctors and they were like, yep, definitely. She checks all the boxes. She has ADHD. Let's medicate her. I was pretty young. I think I was like eight. And so they put me on the pill and on Ritalin at the time. And we went through like different ones. And what it did was it really tampered my personality. So all these aspects that I'm telling you that make me who I am today, they were kind of like tamped down. And so 
I was less disruptive for sure, but I, I didn't feel good. Like it didn't feel like I was this, you know, bubbly kid that I always was and all the things that I love to do, it kind of like make me numb. And I would hear over and over again, and of course my parents did this with the best intentions because that's what the doctors would tell them and the teachers would tell them. But really, they never questioned or they never went. And we talk about this a lot now that we're adults, like I'm an adult, but um, they never really stopped to ask questions or do their own research. They, they sort of just followed through the motions. And so years went by and they would keep bumping up the dose and bumping up the dose. And every place that I went to, they were like, yep, she needs to continue taking this. But really, I went through so many years of my childhood with this sort of like mask on. And, and it got to a point where I was like, I, you know, old enough that I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to take this anymore. But I had not only like the, the physiological addiction to it, because as you know, like many of these drugs have this component, that's the same main component as cocaine. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's highly addictive, but not only that, I think for me, the hardest thing was sort of the, the psychological aspect of it. For so many years, I would hear from parents and teachers that I was very disruptive and that if, if I didn't take this pill, then, you know, I would get in trouble. I would do impulsive things. My friends would get mad at me because I wouldn't let them talk and like all these things over and over again. I even started to believe that it's what made me intelligent and that I was able to do all the things that I did because of the pill. So even, you know, when it got to the point where I could make my own decisions, it was really, really difficult to get off the pill. And so mostly because of this psychological component. And then finally, I was able to do it. It took a lot of work. It was very, very challenging. Probably one of the most challenging things that I've had to do in my life to get out of this. And so once I did, I realized, wait a second, you know, all, the, all these years, like all this energy that I have, it's, it's very common. Like this is, you know, kids have a lot of energy and yes, I was disrupting and I was standing up and I was doing all these things, but really that's just what regular kids are meant to do. Right. The problem is that and we can talk about, you know, the, the traditional school system, but it makes you, since you're very little, like have to sit down and not wiggle and be still for so many hours and not talk and not move. And like all those things are like counterintuitive to what we know about kids and their development. And so what happens is, of course, more and more you get kids like me and like probably you that are not you know, meant to fit into this mold of having to sit down still quiet and pay attention for hours. Like that's just not congruent with what we know about how we, how we perform and how we learn and how we develop. And so these kids easily get labeled as ADHD so that it's easier to manage for the teacher. The parents have an easier time at home, but it doesn't really mean that we're ADHD. Right. And so again, once I, able, once I was able to leave and, and get off this medicine, I realized, wait, all these aspects of my personality that I was told were negative are actually really positive. Like this is what makes me, you know, have this passion to do the things that I do and talk about all these things in the way that I do and, and the energy and the wanting to work on this, like all this comes from just my, my, my personality. This is who I am. And I wonder what would have happened if I hadn't gone on this medicine when I was little, like, like how would I have turned out? Like what, what are some things that I would have maybe tried that I didn't because, you know, I was so focused on, on, on this other stuff. And so then I became a teacher and, and it really like got to me when I would get all these parents telling me like, you know, my, my child is super disruptive, right? I'm like, well, not really. I mean, they have a lot of energy, but, but it's just like, well, yeah, but all the other teachers are complaining and at home he's like super disruptive and he's always moving and this and that we need to put him on the medicine. I need you to sign off. And I would be like, well, no, I actually, I'm not comfortable with this because I don't think your child has ADHD. I don't think we should medicate. And it would really come back to me. And, and so it happened a lot. It happened a lot. And it's difficult because parents are like, well, the doctors are saying 
that this is what I'm supposed to do. And, and so what I've come to realize is that it's not like the doctors have bad intentions. There is a whole market behind this problem. And again, it's, it's a little bit controversial because I'm sure that there are some kids that actually do need it, but it's, or adults that do need it, but I think it's like a small percent and it's become mainstream. And, and, you know, and this is not even talking about how people use it in college for other purposes that haven't even been diagnosed. I'm just talking about the ones that are actually like diagnosed when they're little. I think that it's just part of what we're going to talk about today. Like this system that we have in place that enforces things that are not natural for kids and that hasn't changed in a long time and that kids have different personalities and different ways of learning and different ways of developing that, that we just have to find what's right for them instead of medicating them and then just making them go numb for all these years. Um, so it's, again, it's a, it's a complex topic, but that's sort of my experience. And so I kind of said no to a lot of these kids that wanted for me to sign off on these papers. And I, and I wanted to talk about this experience because I feel like hopefully some parents listening to this before they go ahead, because again, it's a lot, a lot of parents get this, this, this request to medicate their kids. It's like, you think about it twice before you blindly trust the doctors, before you blindly trust the teachers, really ask, you know, is it that my kid really has this or is this just his personality or her personality and they're just not in the right environment? So if you question that, I think that more kids would probably not go in this medicine that then it's really hard to be you know, off it. You're a mother of a son. Let's just say a doctor told you and, and your son was brought up in your gifts and said, yeah, I think he might need some medication for his ADHD. Do you know where the line is? Like as a teacher and having watched so many kids where you go, well, maybe he actually does, or maybe this is just something we're going to deal with. Like, where do you draw your line for your son? I, I actually, you know, again, I would get this request a lot from parents and there was not one case that I was like, yep, this one, this one, I do think that, that they have ADHD. Like I actually, I actually don't think, you know, I think it's again, the, the very, the, the minority, the problem is that it's become very mainstream at this point and it's hard to convince parents about it. But I, I just think that they're being kids for my kid. There's no way that you can, I mean, I think that, I think that, I mean, my, my child is very young, he's 10 months old, but I think that it would take a lot for me to say, yes, he, he needs medication. Like, I feel like I want for him to be active. I, I have this whole idea that I don't want for him to be in a structured environment until he's like seven or eight. I want for him to be out exploring, releasing all this energy that is part of his development. And so really, I mean, unless, I don't even know, I don't even know what, what would take for me to be like, yes, I need to medicate him. Cause I feel like so many, there's so many avenues and so many different learning experiences that he can engage in. If he's very active like me, which, which there's a big possibility that he will, you can do more hands-on things. You can do, you know, learning through projects or being outside. I love this idea of like forest schools where kids are outside running around for almost all day, you know, and they're releasing energy. And I can guarantee that most of those kids are not diagnosed with ADHD. Why? Because they're in the environment where they're supposed to be running around and moving all day and getting tired and, you know, and so I don't know. I mean, I, I think I don't have a, an answer for this other than I would really question things. And, and I encourage parents to do this too. It's like, really be skeptical. Like says who, like observe your child. And, and yeah, I mean, I don't know what, what your experience was like. Like, do you think you actually had ADHD or do you think you were also one of those people that was mislabeled? No, I think it's a lot of kind of what you said. I mean, even as you're saying this, like I still struggle with sitting down and being quiet. It's just not my nature. I don't think it'll ever be my nature. And for you to say like leaning into those gifts, there was a period where I thought, man, something is maybe wrong with me. But then I know what we're about to talk about. 
The idea that every kid's job on this planet is to sit down, shut up and pay attention to the teacher and not move an inch. That seems almost like military. And I think we're going to talk about how we got to this being the the thing. But I know this for a fact, taking that medication made me feel terrible afterwards. It made me feel really fidgety and just in my head, thousands of thoughts and things that I hated. I didn't eat well. There's just so many side effects that way made it clear over time. Like this doesn't seem like a good solution either. Mm -hmm. Totally. And in the amount of kids that go through that, it's just, it's insane. It's insane. It's insane. And it's growing. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, because again, environments are getting more and more restrictive with time and, and kids have to release this energy. Like it's just, they have to, they have to find a way in that. And there's this whole notion of like school starting too early. And if you look at the research, like kids should actually be doing like playing outdoors and like doing exercise and actually moving first thing in the morning in order to be able to then sit down or not sit down, but then learn anything. Like if you want for their brains to wake up and to actually consume, they need to be moving a lot in the morning particularly. And so I feel like this is going to continue to become a problem (laughs) if we continue to have kids sit down since 7 a.m. quietly trying to pay attention. Like, of course, more and more kids are going to be diagnosed with ADHD. How did the current state of education become the current state of education? I'm assuming you've done a lot of work on this. Like, how did we even get to why we think this is the right way to educate kids? Yeah, so it's really interesting because education actually used to be the job of parents and churches and one-on-one tutors. And then 200 years ago, this started to change in a region of Germany called Prussia. And the reason was that They had just been defeated by Napoleon's army. And so the government was like, we need to do something so that this doesn't happen again. Let's sort of take charge of educating the population so that they become loyal army soldiers ready to fight for war. And so this was sort of like the first attempt to group kids together and to, you know, put them all through the same subjects, et cetera, to learn something in common. And again, the purpose was to train a generation for the military. And so this kind of became the basis of our modern school system. They they were the ones who come up with the idea of a, you know, a building where you would bring everyone together. You had a squadron leader, which was the teacher. You had all those kids grouped together. This idea of mandated attendance, extended long days, and all, all this came from the Prussians. And then their model worked really well in terms of they were able to come up with one of the, you know, best fighting armies in the world at that time. And so this model spread across the globe because everyone wanted to sort of copy this, right? And then around the 1960s with the whole, you know, World War II kind of revealed the nation's manufacturing capacity and the need for that. And so the shift turned from training people for the military to training people to become, you know, work as managers of corporations and at factories. So this whole idea of the assembly line. And then the United States led this second round of, the history of education because they could produce more guns and more ships and, you know, their assembly line was really good. And so what happened was the theme became standardization and efficiency. So everything worked kind of like a factory, right? You try to extend the school day so that you maximize output. You would put kids together by the same age. You would move them all through the same content. You would ring bells, like all this notion. It worked kind of like a factory, right? And so again, the outcome was pretty good. You were able to educate a whole mass of people at the same time, but the goal was never to produce you know, citizens that would think for themselves, that were creative. Like those were not really the needs back then. You would think that with time, 
things would keep changing to adapt to our current needs, but that just hasn't happened, right? There's a lot of bureaucracy. There are a lot of stakeholders. There are a lot of people on the top that are creating, you know, this curriculums. It works like a business. And so there's little that has changed since then. And if you look at the results at the beginning, literacy rates would skyrocket, right? When you started to do this, because you were actually educating, you know, a lot of people, you were teaching them how to read, how to write. But then since the 1960s, actually, like everything has gone down and in decline from, you know, test scores in the U.S. in particular. I'm talking about the U.S. in particular, but a lot of countries around the world have adopted the same model. But yeah, in terms of standardized score tests, like they've really gone down. In terms of the confidence that people have in public school system is at an all-time lows. If you look at the people that are actually succeeding and and doing things like they're actually, a lot of them are college dropouts or they're, you know, the rebels and the troublemakers in school that actually did things differently and that kind of parked, you know, carved their own path. And so it makes us question, like, really, what are we doing? Like, why are we still doing things the way that we were doing them 200 years ago? Why aren't we adapting to the current needs? Like our world is constantly changing. It's very chaotic. It's very uncertain. And we continue to train kids with this very straightforward curriculums from many, many years ago and kind of cramming information that they have to memorize that they may or may not use in the future. So it's kind of like just in case you ever need it instead of teaching kids how to learn for themselves. And actually, instead of the content, like the content is constantly changing. Like we should be teaching them how to think for themselves and how to figure things out, right? Like they're going to be, we don't know what they're going to need in the future, right? We have sort of an idea of their general skills, but not the content. And so if we focused on then shifting from just kind of like cramming all this knowledge and all this information so that they all learn the same thing. What if we taught them, you know, how to think differently, how to kind of like look at ideas from a different lens so that we're not all thinking the same thing. We should be teaching them, you know, not not to believe everything that they, what we were talking about at the beginning, not to just believe everything that your teacher tells you, but rather how to question things in a, in a right, you know, in, a, in an appropriate way and how to come up with your own conclusions about the topics that you're discussing. And so there's like this whole notion of how do we teach kids to problem solve, to think critically. And I really, having been a student in 10 schools myself, and then having taught several kids in different places, I don't think we're just, we're doing this. And I don't think we are spending their time correctly. And and it comes from a very, very outdated system. Okay. And and I think there's a lot of people that agree. And, and when you do, when you think of public education and, and the government involved in anything, you think, man, you're trying to turn around the Titanic. Is there anything that gives you hope that this is going to change maybe for the masses, or is this going to have to change by creating Montessori schools and satellite schools and th- synthesis school and things of that nature? Or can this really be changed? Like, is there anything you're seeing from your perspective? So this is an interesting question. So I, I don't think the, the traditional school system is going to go anywhere, right? I think that in, in part it's because it works as a babysitting center, right? A lot of parents need to drop their kids off. And a lot of the alternatives that I'm going to talk about do require a bit more flexibility on the parent side right now. I think that we're going to be changing that in the future. But so I don't think schools are going to go anywhere. And also because a lot of parents, you know, they're like, they, they haven't really stopped to think about about it in a way that makes them change their mind. So they're just like, oh, it worked for me. I, I turned out fine. Yes, I didn't feel like I learned a lot. Yes, I was bored. Yes, I think m- maybe my time could have been used more effectively during my childhood, my most important years, but it worked for me and I turned fine. So wh- why change it? So a lot of people think like that. So I don't think the system's going to go anywhere. I also don't think that there's anything we can do to actually change the system. 
I think that a lot of people are trying to add some stuff and by adding technology and this and reforming and this and that, but I don't, I think we need to transform the system like, like from the ground up. And for that, we need to build an alternative system. And so I'm very convinced about that. I try to do things differently within the system, quickly realize this is not going to go anywhere. There's just a <laughs> lot, a lot, a lot that on top, you know, it's just really hard for an individual to try to make a difference within the system. And so I was like, you know what? I think I'm better off doing something outside the system that actually, you know, spends kids' time in, in the appropriate way. And so I think what's going to happen is people are going to continue using the school system, but then there's a lot of people that have realized, especially with COVID, how little kids are actually learning in school, how we're actually spending their time and that there are other alternatives. And I'm not saying that the online learning that we saw during COVID was actually like the right way to do it. I actually think that that was just sort of like a, a, a bandaid. We were trying to figure out what to do with all the uncertainty, but but a lot of good things came out of it. This idea of like learning pods and kids learning in like smaller communities that's more based on their interests. And you can actually like have a saying in the curriculum and, and we can talk about like those kind of alternatives. But I think that more and more we're trying to, see, we're starting to see with online education, with like micro schools and with alternative programs from Montessori, from Reggio Emilia, from like different philosophies that are more alternative, parents are starting to incline for that. And then with, you know, now with school choice, like, Florida, for example, is one of those states that parents are now having, you know, being able to spend the money that they want for their kids' education any way they want, whether it is, you know, you enroll them in, in an online school and then you enroll them in synthesis for their problem solving and then you enroll them like you, you can actually like pick and choose how you want to use that money to educate your kids. I think that that's going to be a growing trend as more and more states become, you know, pro-choice in that, in that sense. And so I think that that's sort of like where we're heading we, of course, need more people working in the alternative education space to expand those options. And we need more. I recently invested in this. It's called Moonrise, which is like physical spaces that you have. It's kind of like a like a co-working learning space where you drop your kids off from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. You can drop them off whenever. And you have guides and facilitators and adults there that are watching the kids. But every kid comes in with their backpack and they like are working on different things. You know, some of them are homeschoolers. Some of them get dropped off after school. So they're working on their stuff. Some of them are world schoolers. Some of them are like go to micro schools and then they get dropped here. And I think that that's such a wonderful concept because you're surrounded by kids, you're playing, but you're also working on your own thing. And then you get to go home and like, you know, go to after school activities. So they're trying to expand across the US. And I think that when we have more facilities like that, it's easier to solve the babysitting problem. And so I think that that's sort of what's going to happen. The system's still going to be there, but more and more people are going to be um, opting out of this system and enrolling into this like, alternative learning methods. As a mother, how do you gauge where the line is between listening to your child who's young and is, you know, doesn't have a lot of experience and then actually knowing what's best for them and saying, no, I think, you know, because a five-year-old will tell you one thing and there's probably a lot of truth in what they're saying, but there's also probably that line of, as a parent, I probably need to enforce X. Like, where's your line with your child or the children that you've taught to where you're listening to them, but you're also giving them kind of your best, you know, wisdom. Yeah, I love this question because I, I tend to incline more for this like progressive philosophers that say that the teacher and the adult, it's kind of a facilitator. So it's not the fountain of wisdom that knows everything and that's directing the child and telling them what to do. And no, like, I don't, I don't believe in that. I believe in more like you provide the right space and the resources and the peers 
And then you ask and prompt the right questions and you guide them through whatever it is that they're doing. But but the child is the one that's sort of based on what they're curious on. They will decide where to go. And I think that this works really well, especially when they're younger. And and there's another, you know, kind of like the extreme. You have like this democratic schools, for example, the Sudbury schools. And there are lots of things that I admire from them, but they're very much like the child always decides it's in charge of absolutely everything. And there's no place for an adult at all. Like, I actually don't agree with that. I do think that adults, you know, we are there to set, you know, boundaries and limits and to guide kids. And so there is that like, where do you, when do you intervene and when do you not? So for example, when they're little, kids are very, very curious and they want to learn. Like that's sort of like in them, right? We're born that way. We want to know about everything. That's why they're like asking why all the time and asking questions and this and that. And they are grabbing stuff and breaking stuff and trying things. And so they're like unstoppable. But but then what happens is you start to see that that fades, starts to fade down when you put them in a structured environment, whether it's pre-K or kindergarten or whatever it is, that suddenly somebody's telling you, you know, what are the subjects that you're going to be learning about, when you're going to be learning about them, to what extent, when you have to like close it, even though you're super excited about it, you're like, nope, this period is done. You need to close it. We need to move on to the next thing. Oh, now I'm actually going to grade you on what you're learning. So now, you know, you you better do really well on this because or otherwise I'm going to give you a grade. And so suddenly like they have no choices over this thing that came naturally to them. So obviously this curiosity and this excitement and all these things start to get replaced by this negative things, right? Like, oh, I, I no longer want to learn because they're forcing me to learn this or I'm not interested in this or I actually wanted to do a little bit more of that or, oh, now I need to focus on that grade, not really on the learning. So like all my focus goes there. And so this whole thing that was really natural gets like squashed <laughs> by putting them in this like really confined traditional spaces. And so what happens is I think that, for example, if you look at Finland, kids don't really go to school until they're seven. Like that's when they start like the formal schooling. And some parents in the U.S. are like, oh my God, like if, like those kids are probably super behind, you know, when they're seven. And if you look, it's like, no, actually many of them learn how to read on their own. Why? Because nobody's forcing them to do this. Like we all develop at different rates. We all have different, you know, like ways of doing things. And some kids can learn how to read at four. Some kids learn how to read at 12. And the outcomes end up being the same. But if you force them to do something, what ends up happening before they're ready, what ends up happening is, well, some of them just may not catch it on time. So they end up in the remediation groups, right? And so it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where I'm not good at this. I don't want to do this. They develop negative feelings about, you know, the subject that you're forcing them to read. And then they don't want to read for pleasure anymore, which is like, they would have been off way better if you didn't force them, but you expose them to books and you read with them and you kind of like have them in this like literary rich environments. And then they pick up on reading because they're curious about it. And then they learn how to read without being forced. And then they want to read for the rest of their lives in order to keep learning. And so I think that a lot of what happens when, when, when you let them explore their curiosities and go at their own pace when they're little, there's a lot more learning than when you force them. But then it obviously gets to an age like after seven, eight, nine, where you need to start exposing them to different topics and different subjects. I don't think that the way we do it in school is the right way, but I do think that they do need to be exposed. So if a, if a five or six-year-old tells you, no, I don't want to learn math because like I just don't want to learn math, you're like, well, you, you don't really have a choice over that. I'm going to expose you to math. And then after you've been exposed to like the fundamentals of it and all this, if you decide that later on, you actually want to be, you know, a, a painter and you don't want to focus in math, that's fine, but you do need to be exposed to it. And like that is for many, especially the STEM subjects, I think it's very important you expose them. And so that's where sort of like the role of the educator comes in. But 
just to expand a little bit more on that, what I've noticed, like when I was student teaching in New York, I it was the first time that I went to the schools that were mixed age groups. And so I it was the first time that I saw that the teacher was not like in the in the middle of the room telling kids what to do and imparting that like actually she just kind of like presented a lesson, gave them the resources, and then she could leave the room and the kids were like teaching and learning on their own. And what happened was that because you had younger kids and older kids, the younger kids wanted to do what the older kids were doing, right? Even if they were like in, you know, age of first grade, they were actually doing things that third graders were doing because you you were not giving them a speed limit, right? They just wanted to copy what the older kids are doing and they were able to do it. And that's what I've noticed that happens most of the time when you actually don't stop kids and don't give them that limit and you just present them the problem. Sometimes it's more challenging that you think they're going to be, most of the time they're able to do it. And then what also happened was like the older kids wanted to teach the younger kids. And so they would really crystallize what they were learning. And so the role of the adult became really irrelevant at that point, right? And so that's where I think that there's that line where it's like, okay, you're not there to teach everything and to sort of like give them all, all the steps. And to, no, you're there to ask the right questions, to determine when to intervene and when not to intervene, when to let them struggle, when to let them figure it out, when to let them, you're also there to advise them and and give them the, the reasoning behind things. Like when kids were asking me like, Ms. Fabrega, why are we even learning this? Sometimes I was like, I have no idea. Like I literally don't know up to this day, I've never used this information in my life. You know what? Let's skip this unit or this lesson. Let's go to the next one. If you don't have a good explanation for what it is that you're asking them to learn, then there's a problem, right? And so it's a long-ended answer to say that I think that the role of the educator is there to impart sort of like the right questions, give them the right environment, give them the resources and guide them, but not necessarily direct their learning. I think it should be way more student-centered. Okay, you worked in the public school system and I've listened to enough of the podcast and just read enough of the things that you've done. Was there a moment where you finally, maybe it happened like the first day where you were like, oh, wow, I'm not jiving with this. Was there something that happened or was it a series of events that you had? And then my follow-up to that is, how does somebody work within the system but do things differently? Because it sounds like a lot of teachers might want to do something differently. They're just not allowed to. So here's here's the thing. When I, I realized that there was a problem when I was student teaching because I had to observe kids in many, many different schools with different teachers, different grades, you know, for an entire day, like for days, right? And so that's when I started to realize, wow, these kids are not really paying attention. They're not interested in, in, in doing things. They're learning to pass a test. They have no idea what to do with the content after the test. They don't know how to solve a problem using that information. Like all these things started to become very obvious as I was observing from the back, like what was going on. And I recognized that, like I talk about in my book, like this is the game of school. A lot of kids learn how to pick up, you know, what are the shortcuts and the things they need to do in order to pass you know, to the next grade and sort of like get away with the school learning so that they can actually do the things that matter to them outside of school. And that's sort of like the learning game. And so I noticed this, I, I recognized it because I played this game 10 different times in all the schools that I went to, but I was like, wow, what am I going to do? Cause I want to be a teacher, but like, I can't, like, I, I need to do things differently. And I try to do things differently in my classroom. And I think that to a certain extent I did. I created a very student-centered environment. I give my kids lots of choices. Like I try to deviate from the curriculum as much as I could to actually learn about the things that the kids were interested in learning because they pick up, you know, if they're curious about something, that's the moment where you need to introduce that or talk about that because they're already excited about it. And so I would try to do that, but it got to a point, especially with like standardized tests and when it came testing season, 
where you have to cram for a test because, you know, that sort of defines everything for these kids and teacher salaries are tied now to like the performance of the kids for many of these tests. And so what started to happen was that all the things that I had worked really hard on at the beginning of the year or through the middle, it suddenly went, you know, kind of like sideways when I had to focus 100% on teaching for the test. And so that's where I was like, whoa, like this is so messed up, so messed up that this is, this becomes like what we're doing in school 24 seven, like prepping for a test. And so that's when I started to become really disengaged. And that, and then this interesting, I did it for three years in this school. And then the fourth year, I kind of knew that I was going to be leaving because I was like, I don't see like all my kids, they seem to be very happy here in the classroom. They love to read, they love to write and this and that. Well, most of them. And then they would go on to the next grades with great teachers sometimes. And they would come back to visit me and they're like, they hate it writing. They no longer wanted to do this. They don't want her for read. And I was like, what's going on? And so I realized that even if you have great teachers, as you keep going up in the system, things become even more rigid, more structured, less choice, less autonomy. Kids, again, have a lot of like gaps in their knowledge from previous years that were not ever like addressed because a teacher can't address all the needs of the kids, you know, 30 kids. Like if some are behind, you can't stop the class. And so they become really disengaged because the pace and the, uh, of everything keeps, keeps them going faster and faster. And a lot of them never catch up. And so they're like, what's the point of this? I'm just going to give up and just kind of like go through the motions until I graduate. And so the fourth year, I knew that I was going to be leaving soon. So I was like, I'm not going to, let's see what happens when I don't test prep. Like, I'm not going to engage in this. I'm just going to keep teaching them what they're interested in. I'm going to cover a lot of this material my way. The lessons don't seem relevant. I'm just going to skip them. Let's see what happens. I was like, I'm probably going to be leaving soon anyway. What ended up happening was that, and this were particularly, this school used the MAP tests, which are like this like standardized test for reading, for math, and for literacy for writing and they're like two to three hours long and kids since kindergarten are taking this test in front of a computer or an iPad. Like it's insane. And there's a lot of stress over it. Like it's, they take it at the beginning of the year to see where they are. And then there's a projected growth and they take it at the end of the year. So I did not test prep. And the principal calls me to her office because she has to like go over the results with you and of your class and talk about it and this and that. And she was like, well, your class for like scored first place because you use this test to kind of like measure across, you know, across the school and then with other schools in math and in reading. Like, what did you do? Like, this is great. Like all your students, like 70% of your students met or exceeded their targeted growth. Like, what did you do? And I was like, well, you want to know the truth? I actually did not test prep this year. I did not make my kids nervous. I did not send stuff home for parents to review with the kids. I did not stop my days to like focus on this textbook problems and teach them for the tests. And I think that, you know, I covered the material, but in a way that was more relevant and I didn't have to test prep on the kids. You're telling me that they did pretty well. And she was kind of shocked. And originally she wanted for me to talk in the professional development meeting next Wednesday about what it is that I did. But when I said that, she was kind of like, oh, interesting. Okay. Let's just kind of like leave it there. Why? Because that's not, it it goes kind of like against what everyone's doing. Right. And so if by any chance, maybe it worked and it was luck that it worked with my class, maybe I had a really high class. I don't know. But then I guess she's thinking like, well, if it doesn't work, then what's going to happen? The test and this and that. So this is an example of something that happened that made me be like, okay, I'm done. Like, I can't keep doing this. It's just not rewarding anymore. I think I'm wasting my kids time. There has to be a better way. And also it was kind of like a call, you know, of of what's happening and and one of the main problems with education right now, that everything revolves around this standardized tests, like everything, right? And it's become the whole point of education. And I think that's what makes it go sideways. I think that's what's, you know, a lot of it lacks purpose because of this obsession with metrics and standards and this and that, like it's become a big problem. 
I totally agree. And and you see people that are regularly very smart that also have part of their DNA is they freak out when the big test comes. They almost like can't pass it. It's like tripping a wire over and over. I guess my question is, do you think tests are even necessary? Is there some degree of a test that's necessary? And if not, or maybe the answer isn't all or none, but like, how would you know somebody's making progress if you didn't have tests? Yeah, I, I think it's important to find a way to assess people's knowledge, right? And what they're learning. I don't think that standardized tests is the only way. I think that standardized tests are not completely useless. They do give us sort of like a baseline of some of the academic knowledge and the content that the kids are learning. But like you very well said, I had many students that would pass the test with flying colors and then they had no idea how to apply what they learned to solve a problem. So it's like, what's the point? I was like upset because I was like, wait, you got an A. So if your parents see this, they're like, oh my, but you actually know nothing about this. Like you, you don't know. And then I had the kids who, like you very well said, they knew the content. I had been with them for, you know, for a long period of time. I knew that they knew how to do this, but they just were not good test takers. And so the test did not reflect their true ability and they were penalized for that. Right. And so how do I explain to parents? No, I know your kid got a bad grade, but actually your kid was very nervous or this is not the way that they showcase their learning, but they actually do know the material. That was very hard to convince parents about. And, you know, especially colleges and whatnot, because this of course goes in your transcript and affects you for the rest of your life. And so I, I, I think that the answer, and again, I, I don't have the right answer, but I think that a good place to start is by lowering the stakes of the standardized tests, not making it the whole point of education, but rather using it as a small way to kind of assess some academic ability. But then do, I love what homeschoolers do, right? Like homeschoolers submit a portfolio at the end of the year to the local school board where they have, you know, business plans, they have songs that they wrote, they have videos, they have essays that they were like, they have like a combination of different things that show what they were learning, not just tests. And I think that that would be super interesting because like I said, we all learn differently and we all, I think that we have aptitudes for many things, but it doesn't mean that we can all show what we're learning on the same way. And so I think that if we focused on, well, first, instead of spending so much time re trying to remediate kids' weaknesses, like if we tried to double down on the things that they're really good at and trying to find a way, how can we show, Chris, you're really good at this. Let me try to find a way for you to showcase this. I think it would empower you, you know, as a learner, it would make you more excited to keep going everyone needs to feel the sense of competence and mastery. So it would help out with that. And, you know, just sort of like lowering the stakes of standardized tests, but also like opening up the options and having more ways for people to showcase what they're learning. I think that that could be a really promising starting point um, and not making it all about the grades, right? Making it more about the process and the actual learning. Some people say, and it's kind of different depending on who you listen to, but if you, if you follow the Enneagram or some of these personality tests, I'll say, some say as early as like, you are who you are by the time you're two years old. Some say it's four years old. Some say it's eight years old. Do you have an opinion? Are you are you are who you are by a certain age or are you always evolving? I think you're always evolving. I think that the, the more that you get exposed to different things and different cultures and different people and different ways of doing like, you, you know, you're as long as you're constantly learning, you're constantly evolving. Like, and, 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 you know, you can always stop and unlearn things that are not useful so that you can make room to learn the things that are useful. And you can always keep changing and growing and evolving. Like I, I'm, I'm convinced about that. I don't think that you are the way you are. No, I think your environment has a lot to do with your formation, the people that you get exposed to, and then the attitude that you develop towards learning growing up. All right. When, when we were born in our generation, we're not even that old. 
when we wanted to learn, like our kids, or, or we went outside, we played, there was no iPhones, there was no iPads, there really were no screens. I mean, Nintendo had come out, but you know, it was much different. I want to kind of move into like the age of screens and why they might be really good and then where there's the negative impact. So like, how do you think of teaching kids in a, in a digital world? Yeah. So this is a very complex topic and something that, you know, I, I feel like my, my, my thoughts in this have evolved a lot as I learn more and kind of keep an open mind. So at first I was very like hesitant against screens because I would look around and, you know, you see everyone's like this all the time. Like I'm talking about adults, like not even getting to kids, but like in restaurants, in the street, like walking around, like, you know, all the time people are staring at their phones. It's, it's insane. And then, you know, you have really concerned parents thinking like, oh, my kids, my kids are like addicted to their screens and addicted to the technology. And like, all oh, this is happening. And, and of course, it's a legit concern. But if you look at the world that we live in, screens have become such a crucial, like, like such a big part of our lives. And I don't think they're going to go anywhere. In fact, I think that they're going to become a bigger part of our lives. So yes, in addition to realizing, whoa, we need to do something about it, starting with ourselves, right? And putting parameters and limits for ourselves because we model the kind of behavior that we want our kids to adopt. They're watching us all the time. So you cannot enforce something that you yourself are not doing. Like if your kid won't understand that, if you tell them don't use your phone, but they see you using your phone all the time, they don't make the connection. They don't understand. And so, so it, it doesn't make sense to them because it doesn't make sense. Right. And so the first thing that I usually say, it's like, we need to model, like one of the things I have to do is that when I get home, I need to grab my phone. And this is something new that I started doing. I put it inside this little box that we have in the kitchen because otherwise it's work stuff. Yes. But I'm constantly like, I catch myself, I'm, I'm with my baby, but I'm like grabbing my phone every few minutes to do something. And it's like, no, like, like my, my kid is 10 months old, but he's watching me and this is what he's learning. And then in addition to that, he's watching everyone around him and everyone's with their phone all the time. So the first thing I would say, it's like, we need to model the right behavior. The second thing we need to know is like, instead of making screens the enemy, kids need a lot of guidance in order to navigate this, this world that they're getting into, right? And for that, they need to have a good and positive relationship and a trust relationship with their parents. And so if we get upset and sort of like see the screens as the enemy and like this really bad thing and this and that, then the focus goes there and the kids pick up on this energy and then they kind of like don't want to talk to you about it. And so instead of you being their guide, they kind of hide this from you and they're going to try to figure it out on their own. And I think that that's when it becomes a real problem, because like I said, they need a lot of guidance in order to use technology appropriately. I think that the approach should be we need to teach them you know, how to navigate information abundance, how to curate valuable content, how to make ethical judgments about how to use the information that they're consuming. Like all these skills are things that we as adults need to be teaching. I, I think schools should be teaching this for God's sake, right? But but that's not sort of like the focus. And so that's sort of where it comes to like the parents' role and, and how we can think about helping our kids. But when you actually look at screens, there's actually also a, a, a very big positive component to it, right? If you use it in moderation, the problem is like, well, where do you draw the line, right? And so, for example, if you look at video games, which is something that many kids are drawn to, and I'm not saying that they should be spending their days playing video games, like they should be outside, they should be playing, they should... But they, if they want to engage in video games for, you know, an hour a day or like, and I, I cite all the research in my book about how much is too much based on all the things that I've done research on. And so there are a lot of positive things that they can learn from video games, right? Video games teach you how to teach yourself new skills. Like that's one of the first things. The other thing is it teaches you how to fail 
constructively, right? Like you fail often in video games. You pick yourself up and you keep going. You fail again. You pick yourself up. You And, and kids don't see it as a negative thing. They're just like, oh, I failed. What did I learn? So they start to see that failure is actually part of the learning process and that they need to pay attention to it because it's going to give them clues of what they need to do so that they don't, you know, they, they can keep moving up. Imagine if kids actually developed this quality or this skill in school. In school, it's the opposite, right? You fail, you get a bad grade, you get penalized, and it's like, oh, you're scared of it. You don't want to look at it again, right? And failure is, it's it's super fundamental in order to keep pushing civilization forward, right? That's how we make new discoveries and how, that's how progress happens. And so I love how video games really teach you that. And I don't think it's the only way, but th- those are some of the things that I've started to see. Also this ability of saying like, hey, I, I don't know what I have to do here, but I'm going to figure it out because you don't have somebody telling you what to do in the game. Kids have to pick up the skills as they go. And this is also such a fundamental skill in the real world, right? Like the ability to figure things out for yourself. And so that's something else that I find really interesting. But then also schools have become so rigid that socializing in school is really challenging. So many parents are like, oh, I send my kid to school to socialize. It's like, well, have you seen how much socializing is happening in school? It's like very limited. It's like in the 15 minute recess that they have because they've been caught down by a lot. Or like now lunch breaks are sometimes like science, quiet lunches so that there's no chaos in the cafeteria. It's like, what? Like, like, you know, so kids are not really socializing that much. And then suddenly they get online and they have like all these opportunities to connect with kids from other countries, from around the globe that have similar interests. And so they're meeting this need that they have of relating to other people. And so when parents are like, why is my kid spending so much time, you know, online or in the screens? I'm like, well, have you stopped to try to figure it out? Have you tried to see what it is that they're craving when they're when when they're looking for these experiences that they're probably not getting in the real world? And once you find that out, you can start to then brainstorm with them ways that they can get what they're seeking for in the real world. And so having those open conversations and instead of, again, when you see your kid playing a video game or watching TV or whatever, instead of just like seeing like, oh, why are they doing this? Like try to be curious about it and try to be interested in what is it that they are really seeking for. Then a lot of parents complain about their kids using screens so much, but then they're not really providing them with other like enriching opportunities, right? Like the parents are like, I don't know, like on their phones or working or doing this. And then the only thing that's like available is the screen or this and that. And so, you know, trying to figure out, am I, am am I providing opportunities for my kids to actually want to engage in the real world? Or am I just, you know, uh, otherwise they're probably going to seek for other stuff. And so I think that it's like a limit. It's it's like finding that right balance between how much is too much and how much is, you know, actually productive and providing those real world fulfillment opportunities so that they want to engage in the real world as well. And then embracing the fact that screens are here for the long run and having open conversation with your kids about how you also struggle with this and how it's hard because screens are designed to feel like it's never enough. And so the faster you understand this, the better you can explain to your kids like, yes, when you're playing this game and I tell you to stop, it's time to stop. It's you're going to be frustrated. It's normal. You want to keep playing like skins are just, you know, screens are designed that way, but you can't all keep playing all day because of this and this and this. So like having those open conversations and then finding that happy medium where they can agree with you on the, you know, the boundaries that you want to have. Your energy is the best. (laughs) I absolutely love. Okay. You said something, you said failure. And you said when kids are playing video games, they're okay failing over and over and over again. Do you think that the reason why they're unwilling to fail in other areas of their lives is because of the expectations that adults have put on them to where failure is scary? And then I want to kind of go down this failure road Because we live in a world today where nobody wants to fail or nobody feels comfortable failing. And 
We believe that everybody should have this very easy life. There should be no trials and tribulations and that that would be a good life when I believe history has taught us that failure is what actually makes us great. It's what makes us learn. So let's kind of go down this failure road because I think today's parents are so scared to see their kids fail that they go out of their way to make sure it doesn't happen. And there's this balance of like, nobody likes to see their kid fail, but you kind of got to let them. So let's just start with why do video get, why are kids uh, comfortable failing on video games, but not in other areas of their life? When, and, and I love this topic, I find it fascinating. So great questions. When kids are playing video games, the stakes are pretty low, right? Like if they lose in the game, nothing's going to happen, right? Like other other than you lose and then maybe you have to start over again or maybe you lose a few points. But in terms of like, like actual hardcore consequences, there are no hardcore consequences unless you're playing, I don't know, professionally for money or whatever, like which is usually not the case for kids. And so they normalize this idea of failure because they're not getting penalized by it. Again, if you look at what happened, like the whole point of failure, when like when your kids that is the time where you should be failing all the time, right? Because you don't know things, you're learning things and 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 you're not, you know, you, we cannot expect kids to like pick up on something right away. No, of course, you're not going to be good at it at first. You're going to make lots of mistakes. You're going to fail. And then you need to have the confidence and the, and the, you know, the willing to keep going in order to improve, in order to get better. That's how you improve. But it sounds obvious when we say it, but then when you look at what we're actually teaching kids in school, we're teaching them from the moment they walk in your classroom, we're like, okay, we're gonna learn about this. And on Friday, we're gonna have a test. So you better learn how to spell all these words correctly right away because otherwise you're gonna get this bad grade on Friday. What happens with that bad grade? It gets sent to your parents, it goes on your report card, da da da. And then, you know, kids know that they're high stakes, right? That there's there, there's consequences. So they don't wanna try risky things or because they know that there's a possibility that they won't get them right the first time and they're going to get penalized for it. They don't want to ask questions anymore, which is like one of the you know best qualities that kids have. They're constantly curious. They ask questions because they're trying to deconstruct the world around them. They're trying to make sense of the things that are thrown at them. They're trying to think for themselves. But when they quickly learn, oh, if I have a question and it's a dumb question, I'm going to make a fool out of myself. Like I better not. It's risky. I, you know, I don't want to look like like, I don't know in front of everyone. So we start to teach them, you know, you need to fear this idea of not knowing. You know, I don't know is not a good thing. That's what we're teaching them. When in reality, saying I don't know is an opportunity to figure it out and learn about it. And so I, I'm always amazed by this idea that it should be now when kids are young that, that we give them plenty of opportunities to fail productively when the stakes are low, when, when you know, it doesn't really matter what happens when if they get things wrong other than they get to try again. It's like a feedback, right? We're giving, it's like in the real world, you get feedback of the things that you're doing so that you can improve. When you're older and if you, you know, go all these years without practicing failure and being scared of failure and avoiding failure, failure is part, like you said, of our lives, you know, things are going to happen that won't go our way. And we need to be prepared to navigate that. And how do you get ready for that? By having plenty of practice. But if we're not giving kids practice, then they turn adults and suddenly, boom, failure means maybe something catastrophic, right? The stakes are very high at that point that it can mean a failed business, a failed marriage, like it's a big problem. And so I'm always like, why aren't we teaching? Like, why aren't we prioritizing this in school? Like giving kids practice, plenty of practice with this skill that is so important for everyone. Along the, you know, those lines. And again, video games are one way to practice that. It's not the only way, but it's like one way that I've seen that I'm like, I, I, I love this. Like kids just keep getting practice with this. But then there's this other side of it, which is, this idea of 
of wanting to figure things out. Like, like kids also have, like they've become very risk averse because we figure everything out for them, right? Because like you were saying, we're scared that they may feel bad or they may get confused or they may fail or they, we are like shielding them from all these opportunities to get stronger and to learn the skills that they're going to need in the future. You often hear parents say, I just want for my kid to be happy. So I'm going to do everything for them to be happy. And I'm always like, if you want your kid to be happy, you need to teach them how to be sad. You need to teach them what to do when, when, you know, adversity comes their way. You need to stop intervening when they're having all these conflicts with their peers. Like I'm not saying disappear and not be in the equation. No, be there, but don't intervene. Like try to see how they like give them the skills so that they can actually like handle things on their own because Otherwise, you can't expect them. Like parents are like, well, I want my kid to be independent. I know I want my kid. And then they don't give them independence. And then suddenly when they turn 18, it's like, boom, I expect you to be independent. No, it's a skill that you need to learn. And so the more we expose kids, it's like germs, right? The more you expose yourself to like different germs, you're building your immune system. It's the same thing with hardship, right? You expose them to, you know, sad situations and hard situations and challenges and, and you know, failure. And when things don't go their way, and the more you give them practice and exposure, the more comfortable they'll get, you know, with this and they will learn how to navigate this on their own. So to me, it's very, very clear that that's what we need to do. And that's why I'm fascinated with synthesis, which is the startup that I'm part of, because we focus on giving kids plenty of practice with this. That's like the whole purpose of, you know, the, the games and simulations that we build. It's like, how can we make this like, like scenarios with real world problems where kids are excited, not because of the extrinsic rewards, but because they're actually working on something that matters. They have stakes in the game and they get to fail a lot because things are not clear. We make them challenging on purpose. We don't give them instructions. And at the beginning, kids are super frustrated and they don't know what to do because they're used to adults intervening, adults telling them what to do. You know, failing is a negative thing, but we start to reshape that. And kids that go through the program, it's fascinating because they start to see failure as their friend, as, you know, oh, this is just part of, you know, what is it here to teach me? And I'm not just saying this, like, it's really like the conversations that you have with the kids after they've been through the program. And I'm not saying synthesis is the only thing, but it's something that I've seen we do really well. The kids befriend failure in a way that they start to take more risks. They start to take on more challenges. They want to try new things. And I think that these kids are going to go very far in life because that's what it takes to be good at whatever it is that you want to be good at when you grow up, right? The, that ability to keep going when things get really hard. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm asking this for myself, but there could be some parents on here that, that are thinking, man, I have created a household with high expectations. My kids are scared to fail. Maybe they're showing signs of doing it. And I really want to change that. Do you have any like practical advice or wisdom on if somebody left this podcast right now, the next best thing to go home and start changing the culture to where their kids weren't afraid to fail? Yeah. So I have a whole chapter in my book with practical strategies of things that you can do, but a few simple things that you can try right away is the first thing is usually the problem starts with us, with the parents, because we were conditioned when we were little to be scared of failure for all the reasons that we just talked about and how we do things in school. And so the first thing that you need to do is acknowledge that and reflect on your own view of failure and how you feel about it. Because remember that kids are sponges. And, and I think this is like the biggest takeaway I took as a teacher from meeting, you know, I, I would work with the kids and then I would meet the parents and I'd be like, this makes so much sense, you know, and this happened 
all the time. Like kids are literally like, like it's, it's crazy. They absorb everything and they become little you, meaning you until they're like older and they can break patterns and stuff. But like when they're growing up, they're really a mirror of their parents. So if you are scared of failure and if you, you know, when you get something wrong, you make a big deal about it. You're very harsh on yourself, the way that you talk to yourself, kids pick up on this and they model this regardless of what you want to teach them. If they look at you and that's what they see, that's what they will do. So the first thing you can do is really reflect on your own feelings and your experience growing up with failure and then try to unlearn those unhelpful lessons that are like, oh, uh, and then and then relearn how to actually deal with failure and model the kind of thing. Like when you don't get something right, it's like, oh, in front of your kids, like, oh, you know what? I didn't do this right. Well, what did I learn about this? What am I going to do better? Now? Okay, it, I, I guess it's not a big deal. And then you keep going. It sounds silly, but I swear just modeling the right kind of self-talk when you get something wrong or the attitude of what did I learn instead of, oh, why did I do this? Like that, you know, and then, oh, I, I want to try this again. Like that, just, you know, giving those examples, huge. The other thing is, start a conversation about failure, like talk to them about, you know, oh, I, I see that you were building that tower. It fell, you felt really frustrated. What, what is it about this that made you so frustrated? Is there an opportunity for you to try it again? Like just talking to them and having them reflect by saying out loud what was going on and their feelings, that's super helpful. The other thing is reading books or stories or biographies if your kids are older or like looking at stories of successful people, because what tends to happen is in school, we talk a lot about, you know, all these people that made it and all these amazing things that they achieved and this and that. But if you actually, I think that the most interesting thing about those people is what happened before they became famous, before they, you know, discovered this brand new thing. And these people usually went through like hell, right? A period of, you know, where things did not go right. They failed a lot, like they struggled. There was a lot of hardship. And, and usually that doesn't get as much attention or, or it doesn't get highlighted as much. But that's where I think the learning happens when you talk about all the struggles that this person went through and they never gave up. They actually kept picking themselves up even when things were super hard and kept going. And that's what made them successful. And that's why they end up where they are. And then you can talk about what they're doing now, but really focus on that trenches, right? Like the process. I think that's fascinating. Then there's this there's this really good talk and I, and I give a summary about it in the book called like the Super Mario Effect by Mark Robert, this like NASA engineer that now is a YouTuber, but he talks about how we should help kids kind of like in Super Mario, like kids are focused on the end goal and not necessarily like the, the pits and, and the failures and this, and that's just part of the process, right? So if we focus on what it is that you want to achieve and then no, you know, the process is, is just what it takes you. Like, like it, it doesn't, you know, like you, you stand up, you keep going this and that, but like really what matters is let's try to achieve what it is that you want to achieve and then not focus so much on all like the different pieces. Like that's super important. And that's like a mind shift. Like when, when we start to, when we stop penalizing failure, kids actually want to stand up and keep going. And there's several experiments that, that have been done that prove this, that when you don't make them lose points for not getting things right, or, you know, give them that back grade or this and that kids are actually like, Oh, you know what? Let me try this again. When you give them that back grade, oftentimes they don't even want to look at it again. So how are they going to get better at it? Right? The whole point of telling you what's wrong is to give you feedback so that you can improve. And so if we start to reframe failure as something positive, I think that, you know, as parents, we can do this at home, right? I think that cheering them on and like the kind of like attitude that you have when things don't go right and the kind of encouragement or even like say like, okay, we're going to try this thing. It's going to be super hard and that's why it's exciting. You're probably not going to get it right because if you do get it right, then it's not even fun, right? And that's part of it and that's fun. You know, I want you to tell me what you learned. Like all this kind of like 
mental exercises are so good to try to befriend that. That's one. And then the last thing I'm going to say is try to find opportunities, whether it is, you know, enroll your kid on a sport that they've never played before, where they're going to be, you know, not good at first, most of, of the kids, unless you're a natural, and then kind of like, you know, incentivize them to stick to it for a little bit. If they don't, you know, if they played for a while and they don't want to do it anymore, then, then let them quit. That's fine. But like en enroll them or engage them or put them into something like synthesis or whatever it is that you want to do where they have the opportunity to be bad at something and improve over time and encourage them along the way. I think that's super important, whether it's playing an instrument, like whatever it is. I think that the more practice they get with this skill, and again, they're not getting practice with this at school. So it's your job as a parent to give them this, the better. And it's never too late to sort of like change this, right? It's just a matter of kind of like reflecting on it and realizing and then you know, addressing it at home. On the nature versus nurture topic, and some kids just gravitate towards some things, how much How much is the educator or the parent really part of that versus it being nurture? Like, you just see some people that become so good at one thing and everybody's like, we have no idea how this happened. When you see kids that have really latched onto something, whether that be a sport or math or writing, or is a lot of that, how they were brought up? Is some of it just nature? Like, how do you think about when you see a student that you can really tell is going deep into something? Why has that occurred? Yeah, I love this question too. And again, I'm going to generalize because of course there yep. are exceptions. So nuance, so, but yes, nuance. Exactly. So here's what I've noticed. I've noticed that of course, some kids are born with an exceptional ability for certain things. Like, of course, that that that's true. And, the, and there are some exceptions, right? But most of the time, it's kids are good at something. But then because you, you tend to gravitate to the things that you're good at, right? And so when suddenly kids get a taste of, of playing a sport or trying something and they realize, oh my God, I'm good, they feel, you know, they want to keep going. And the the number one factor that I've seen for these people that, that get really good at stuff is the parents' support. And I've studied a lot of, because I'm super interested in all this, like entrepreneurs that made it and that became really successful, not just entrepreneurs, but people in general that got to where they are by doing things differently and sort of like not the traditional, you know, right path and like the convent. No, no, no. I mean, like people who like made it grinding and this and that. And what I've noticed is that the one factor that they all have in common is they had parents that believed in them, that supported them, that gave them plenty of exposure to the things that they were interested in and that let them like, you know, really spend time on the things that they were obsessed over. And though that's kind of what makes people great at something. When you have the opportunity to spend lots of time and devote lots of time to doing something that you're obsessed with. And so I think that, yes, there's something obviously with the genes and you're born with certain like preferences and natural talents towards certain things, but it's really what happens, how much you know, if your parents enroll you in this thing so that you get practice with this, if they support you or if they're like, no, no, this is not the kind of thing that I want you to do. Like, you know, it really, really depends on the environment and how much exposure you have to that thing. Got it. Okay. I have a six-year-old, a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And in my day job, I negotiate with people all day. And I sometimes like to pat myself on the back and say, good job. Then I go home and I try and negotiate with my kids. And I feel like, about that small because sometimes I win and I know you have some thoughts on this. How should, how should we negotiate with kids or should we even negotiate with kids? Yeah. So this is, this is, I, 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 this is one of those challenges because it is a challenge, but that I love. And I've learned a lot about it actually by working with kids. And, and, and a few things that I've realized is that kids don't want necessarily 
And again, it, it's important to, when kids ask you a question, it's important for you to give them an explanation, like explain why if they want to know why they're going to use this, why they're, it's super important that you talk to them and you talk to them like adults. They don't like to be talked down to. They, even if they're young, they don't want for you to talk to them as if they were little. No, you like bend, you look at them in the eyes, you explain things. Like I talked to my 10 month old as if he were like five and understood what I was saying. I don't know how much he's picking up on it, but I'm convinced that by doing this, like they they want to listen to you because you're taking them seriously. So that's one thing. The other thing is when you are, they're not necessarily interested when, when something, remember that when they're young, they don't have the same skills that you and I have. They cannot reason the way you and I reason. They cannot, they don't have those, that, that like self-control that you and I have. They are learning that. So a lot of it is, comes from the emotion and like breaking out and this and that. So when the adult tries to be rational with them in this moment where they're like not being rational, they don't want for you to give them a rational answer. What they want is for their feelings to be validated. And this is something that I've learned that has been game changer, my relationship with students. It's like, don't try when they're having that meltdown or the, when they're, you know, when you're trying to reach, don't go for that logical argument. You may be right. And there's a lot, you know, there's a reason why you cannot be up at 9 PM, but they don't want to listen to that. They want for their feelings to be validated. So you say, you know what? I know this sucks. You, you don't want to go to sleep. Like you want to be up. And I know this doesn't feel good. And I know that this is unfair. It feels unfair, but it is my job as a parent to keep you safe. And that means you need to get your hours of sleep. So right now we're going to go to sleep, but I know it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good, but like focus more on addressing. And then there's something magical that happens when you address their feelings. They're like, like they, they may not necessarily like, oh, want to comply with you right away, but they feel heard. They feel that their feelings were acknowledged and that automatically brings their guard down. So that's like one of the first one-on-one -on -one negotiation tips that I've realized. Like when you are dealing with kids, you like really validate their feelings. The other thing you do is you try to give them choices and you can, you know, you try to find how, you know, sometimes they're like, well, there are no choices. There's always something you can do to make them feel like they are in control, right? And it can be something as silly as you want to go out with that Batman outfit for, for lunch. I mean, pick your battles. It's like, okay, okay. Like, I'm not going to argue. If that's what you want to wear. Like, that's fine. You'll be Batman today for lunch. Like, that's fine. Sometimes you just like this with time, it starts to make them feel like, okay, I'm not like, like I'm, they're not trying to control me, right? They're trying to set boundaries and kids actually want boundaries. And some parents are like, oh, I want to be my kid's best friend and this and that. It's like, no, they don't want a best friend, right? That They have that. They want a figure that's understanding, that's kind, and that puts like limits. And so you can put those boundaries and put those limits, but do it in a way where you're providing choices and they feel sort of in control with something. And so I guess those are, and I, and I expand on this on my book, because I actually went down a rabbit hole with this like FBI negotiators and what they do and what I can grab for kids. And I go more specific in the book, but those are sort of like three things that are simple that you can apply right away with your kids. And I swear they work like magic. It's like simple, simple ticks, but they... They work like magic. I already am going to take a, you up on the tip of uh, going to bed. My kids do not like going to bed anymore. And now my four-year-old has gotten old enough to know when her six-year-old sister who gets to go to bed a little later isn't in bed. Uh -huh. And it's a whole thing. Oh, it's a whole thing every night. And sometimes <laughs> I feel like I conquered it. And sometimes I leave just feeling like I got totally owned. <laughs> it takes, it's a process. Well, why is it useless to ask kids what they want to be when they grow up? I love this question. And I hate this question. <laughs> now that kids are like entering school right now, like in this month, you, you see all the pictures on Instagram of like them standing up, like I'm in first grade, this and that. And I want to be a fireman when I grow up, or I want to be, you know, an astronaut when I grow up. Here's the thing. When you talk about careers as, you know, something that you are, 
again, it's this idea of the self-fulfilling prophecy. Kids start to believe a few things. First, that this is who they are and they cannot really change that, right? When in reality, there's research that shows that we, you know, people have over a dozen careers in their lifetime. So like switching until you find what suits right for you should be something that we normalize. And this is something that you need to talk to kids about when they're like, okay, maybe what you want to be when you grow up hasn't even been invented yet, right? And I talk often about how, like, who would have thought that being a YouTuber was going to be a thing, right? And you have all these people making millions of dollars with YouTube. And it's like, that wasn't a thing when I was little, right? And so kind of like talking about instead of careers of something that you are, it's something that you do. And that thing can change or that thing may not be invented yet. Also, it's very interesting because when you talk about things like, and there's a lot of research that this author and Professor Adam Grant talks about, it's like, when you, when he did this experiment with kids, when you talk about, you know, being a scientist versus doing science, it's like vastly different. Like being a scientist is sort of like this thing that, that, that you like possess and you, and you become that. And, and many kids are like, oh, actually that's scary. Like, I don't want to go there. But when you talk about like doing science and anyone can do science and anyone can try, it's suddenly like they're more inclined to pursue careers in science. And it's as simple as simply shifting the language and the way we talk about it, right? Not talk about careers is something we are, but something we do and something that can change. And it goes in line with this idea of if you don't like what you're doing, it's okay to quit, right? And I talk about this a lot, like perseverance is super important, but if you're persevering in the wrong direction, you're better off quitting. So actually teaching kids, you know, I want you to try this. I want you to be exposed to a range of different things, right? So that you get this general knowledge. But then if you don't really like this, I'm not going to make you stick with it, right? You can quit and you can try something else until you find what you really like. And so there's the fine line there, right? Because you need to know like, when's the right time to quit? When are they quitting? Because, you know, for other factors. And so, but, but that's the parent's job to try to find, you know, spend some time trying to find that out. But it's, it's become really, really interesting. Instead of asking them what you want to be, talk about, you know, brainstorm all the things that you love doing and then what you want to try first. And so, it really makes a difference on the way that they approach this. All right. I want to spend the last few minutes maybe just going a little a little more maybe personal. And I wanted to start by you had kind of said that, you know, your husband maybe comes from this in more the traditional way. And you are coming from this in more of the just call it more modern way or you have a different way of looking at it. But I think that's the case at a lot of households. You have parents that have total opposite ways of thinking about how to educate their kids. How do you guys deal with it? And like, how should parents, how do you tell parents to think about it when they're choosing what to do for their kids? Yeah, this is, this is a very interesting question. So here's, I mean, I think it's great. Cause like you said, it provides, it provides a balance in my house. Cause I, after, you know, I'm very passionate about this topic. This is what I live, breathe, and dream about all the time. Like I'm constantly thinking about how can we improve education? What are the things? And it's gotten to a point where I've I've really become like, ugh, with the, with the traditional school system, right? I was there for a long time as a student, as a teacher, and I realized like this really, but the reality, and this is something that, you know, being with my husband, it, it made me realize, it doesn't mean that the traditional school system doesn't work for anybody. No. It actually works really well for like certain type of people. My husband happens to be one of those certain type of people that he really benefited from sitting down quietly straight. He loved paying attention to the teacher. Lectures were the best way that he learned. He has this incredible memory that he would read something or hear something and, and he would, you know, be engraved. He would get the good grade, but then he actually still remembers. And it's, it's crazy. But this is like, and, and the traditional path like re really worked for him. He was very motivated. He loved school. And so there are certain kids that are like that. 
but it's definitely not the norm, right? It's sort of the exception. And so something that I've talked a lot to my husband about and to parents about, it's like, that may be your kid. Like your job is to figure out like, if your kid is in the right environment, if your kid is thriving and is happy, and the most important thing, your kid wants to continue to learn and is excited to learn, then by all means, don't touch that. Like that's the right place for them. But if that starts to change or if that's not the case, then you need to find alternatives. And so when I talk to my husband right now, he's like, well, what are we going to do with, you know, with Fed? And I'm like, well, we don't need to figure it out right now. Like he's 10 months, right? And you see all this like pressure and all this like parents that, you know, their babies are 10 months and they're really like, we need to roll them in this school and we need to do this. And like all this pressure that by the way, it's like a lot of, of it is like made up by the school system. And if you actually look at the research, like this doesn't make any sense. Kids don't have to start school when they're five, but anyway. And so what I think is going to go with the flow. We're going to see what kind of kid we have, you know, maybe he's like his father and he actually wants to go to a more traditional environment. And if that's the case, I'm not going to prive him. I'm going to let him, I'm going to let him try it out. And if he's thriving and he's happy, then great. But if my kid is not like his father and he's more like me or like most of the people that I know, then we're going to try different things out. And there's not one way that works. We're going to try different things until we find what's the right place for him. And when we have more kids, you know, one kid may be very different from the other. And the fact that we're doing this thing for this kid doesn't mean that it's going to work for my next kid. And so what I'm trying to say is we need to keep an open mind. We need to be very patient and we need to be willing to try different things until we find what works for our kids. And it's going to be a lot of trial and error. And some parents are like, oh, I don't want to risk it. Like, why would I do that? And then maybe it doesn't work. And I'm like, well, if your kid is not happy in school, then it's already not working. We're already wasting their time. Their time could be, you know, better spent elsewhere. So you might as well try to find, you know, the best alternative or, or the best environment for them. And so it's all about, you know, yeah, having that balance, having those conversations with your spouse, I think has been super important for us. Like a lot of people don't think about this until they have kids. And, and this is like such an important conversation to have to talk about your values. You need to reflect a lot on your experience growing up. You need to think, stop. And my book, I think that's sort of like the whole point of my book to make you stop and reflect on your own schooling experience when you were growing up, what are sort of like, you know, those myths that you have in your head or those lessons that maybe are not that helpful that you should unlearn in order not to replicate them with your child. Like it takes a lot of introspection as an adult to, to, in order to figure out, you know, what's the best thing that you can do with your kids. And so I invite parents to think about that. And if you don't know where to start, you can read my book. It helps a lot with that. And so, yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's like trying, not being scared again, this whole idea of like failure, not being scared to like take risks and try different things until you find what actually works for your family. And the book will be in the show notes for anybody listening, The Learning Game. Is there any data or anything that comes to mind when I say like a only child versus a child that has eight siblings? Do kids learn more if they're an only child or do they learn more if they have lots of siblings or is it totally random? So I actually haven't looked at the data on this, so I don't quote me on anything. I'm just going to speak from what I, you know, from my experience of working with kids that are, you know, only child or kids that have several siblings. Okay. So that's where this is coming from. And again, I only have one kid. So I am one in five, for example. So I, you know, I come from a big family. I think, I mean, mo moving around, it was me and my sister, but because we moved to many countries, but in total, we were five. And so personally, as a kid, for me, I think I learned a lot from my sister and by teaching my sister, my younger sister. And it was like a back and forth process. And, and, I, and I think it was wonderful for my development. So I think there was a lot of there, but mostly when I was a teacher and I would teach kids that came from 
like we're only child, what I would see, and again, I'm generalizing, but a lot of this of these parents were very much on top of the kid. And so they tended to be the overprotective parents or the quote unquote helicopter parents. And again, I'm generalizing, but it just happened to be a common factor that I saw that the parents were very much on top of the child. And then and then that creates obviously a problem for the reasons that we've talked about. We need to give kids independence. We need to let them sort of struggle, figure things out. And so these parents tend to be a little bit more hesitant because it's like their precious baby and they want, you know, once you have more than one, it kind of becomes like, oh, I, I, I've done this already. And, and sort of, you know, so that's one thing in terms of like the relationship. But then I feel like there's a huge benefit of peer instruction when kids learn from other kids. I think they learn even better than when they learn from adults because they speak the same language. They understand themselves better. It's like, it's like you know, they're on the same note. And so I think that there's something really powerful of being with other kids all the time if you have siblings. And so again, it comes from what I've observed and my, my experience, but I don't really, I haven't looked at the data, but now I'm interested. So I'm going to look it up. Okay. All right. My final question, it's kind of a big one, but maybe you could just share your thoughts. You have a son, you don't know, you, you, you'll probably have more children. How are you thinking about their education? Like, I know we've kind of touched on it in points, but like, do you already kind of have a plan for those first seven to eight years of your son's life? And what's kind of your plan? Yeah, so I get this question a lot. And it's funny because unlike many of my friends, <laughs> I'm not that worried about it. I'm pretty confident that, you know, what, and, and I don't have it all figured out, but I'll tell you what I'm thinking. But again, I'm willing to pivot along the way and I probably will because things are changing so quickly and, and more opportunities are coming up in the alternative space that if we have this conversation again in a year, I'll probably have a different answer. And I'm totally okay with that. Like I'm excited for that actually. But right now, my plan is to... Kind of enroll, like it's like, I, I think of the future of education as a menu where you have like different alternatives and you find what's in your neighborhood or what's online that, that suits, you know, your schedule. And so for my, for my child, I think that he's going to be doing a lot of free play and free exploration and, you know, maybe some like Montessori program for his early years where he can just go like a few hours a day so that he's around other kids and he's learning sort of like life skills and he's engaged and playing around so that he's not at home all the time, right? With me, which... I plan to spend a lot of time with him, but I think it's important for him to be around other adults and other kids as well. So that's one thing. The other thing is I'm very optimistic about um, the digital tutors that are starting to come up. You know, at Synthesis, we're, we, we came up with one that's really, really good, but there are other people also working on this. But I'm very, very optimistic after seeing the results this year that, you know, by the time he's seven, we're going to have a digital tutor that works like a human that's going to be able to cover all the hardcore academics and all the STEM subjects, et cetera, really effectively, like in an hour a day, so that he'll be able to spend on his iPad or his computer, like an hour a day learning those hardcore academics that right now they learn in school for eight hours, they're really not learning for eight hours, for seven days a week, you know, I mean, five days a week for 12 years. And so we're going to concise that in like an hour a day so that the kid has the rest of the day to go to play sports, play instruments, you know, enroll maybe in a forest school so he can be outside. And there's a few around my house that I already checked out that are really, really fun that I think he would have a blast. There are also beach schools that I think are very interesting for a few days a week. I love the idea of micro schools. I think that that's probably what's going to look like 
you know, when he gets a little bit older, like six or seven, if I don't want to be the one in charge at the moment for several reasons, like right now I say I do, but maybe that will change. Then I'll enroll him in a micro school with a parent or a teacher that I really like. That's kind of like you have a saying in the curriculum and it's a few hours a day and it's very project-based learning. And then, yeah. And so I, I kind of plan to go with the flow and, and see what other things, of course, he'll be part of synthesis where he learns, you know, he plays the simulations where he's learning how to problem solve, how to think critically, how to work with other people, communications skills, like all the soft skills. And so as you see, it's kind of like a menu where you pick and choose and you plug in your day, what, you know, depending on, on what works with our schedule. I plan to travel to our home countries. I'm, I'm from Panama. My husband's from Puerto Rico and I see a lot of value and I see how much he grows every time we go back home and we spend some time there with family, with friends, and just like in a different environment. And so, you know, I think having grown up myself moving around a lot, I see the value and how much you learn outside of school when you're doing that. So hopefully we, we can give that to my child as well, but not a concrete answer. See how it's, it's like a little bit of everything. Just like school doesn't need to be this concrete schedule with bells every 45 minutes. And I love it. Anna, this has been fabulous. Thank you very much for uh, your time today. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. And your questions were very, very good. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 